welcome back to Vinigate Talks podcast, your favorite talk show. This is Vishwanath, your host. I am a mental conditioning coach and counselor. I'm the author of Success Mantra and Sports. For my show today, I have Mr. Kaushik, a senior cricket journalist. Mr. Kaushik has worked with leading media houses like Newstime, Deccan Herald, and Wisden India. He has worked with Wisden India for 16 years before finishing his stint as the executive director. He has reported more than 100 test matches and covered every 50-over World Cup since 1996. Mr. Kaushik has co-authored Vivius Lakshman's autobiography, 281 and Beyond. He is currently a freelance cricket journalist and a resident of Bangalore. Welcome to the Winning Edge talk show, Mr. Kaushik. It's a pleasure having you with me today. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Vishwanath. My pleasure to be here on the show with you. Most welcome. Mr. Kaushik, please accept my appreciation to you for your illustrious career as a sports journalist. And congratulations for achieving that milestone of covering 100 test uh, Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words. Ms. Kaushik, you have shown so much love for cricket and have been associated with the game for a long time. Have you been a cricketer at any time? And how did you take up journalism? Yes, well, uh, I did play cricket uh, growing up, like I suppose most kids in India uh, have done over the years. We have seen uh, our siblings, we have seen our even our parents sometimes, we have seen our seniors in school, all of them uh, playing this game of bat and ball and enjoying themselves to the hilt. So it was almost like a natural uh, progression that one was attracted to the sport. We played gradually, maybe you were good enough to play for the school team. Uh, I managed to get into the college team. I was in the university team. But uh, I guess once I uh, joined the profession full-time, I, I don't think I was ever good enough to be a cricketer at anything more than university level or club level. So, uh, yeah, that that was there. Uh, and then I did my college in Coimbatore. I'm, I'm from Coimbatore. Uh, I did my college, my graduation from PhD College of Arts and Science. And I always had a great uh, fascination for reading and uh, by extension for, extension for writing. So when I finished my BSc, then in the same college, I joined uh, the master's course in communication. And as part of our uh, communication uh, requirements, as part of the degree requirements, we had to do internship at the end of each semester. The first semester was uh, compulsory. It was compulsory that you went to a newspaper organization. The second and third was optional. You could go to a, an ad agency. You could go to a PR firm. Uh, as luck would have it, I went uh, to Newstime uh, in Hyderabad, which is part of the Inadu group. So I went there in uh, at the end of my first semester to do my internship. And we sort of formed a nice bond there, so I went for my second internship there, I went for my third internship there, and then once I finished my uh, course, even once we finished giving our exams, then the newspaper asked me to come and join them, uh, which is how I sort of got into journalism. It wasn't accidental. Uh, when, when I was studying, when I was doing my degree, I never thought I'd have a career as a journalist, but uh, as, as it panned out, I lost a little bit of interest in biochemistry as I moved towards the final year, and then I found this this prospect of being able to write a much more appealing one. I never thought when I joined journalism that I would become a 
hippie journalist. So I guess it's just a happy accident, a happy coincidence that I went on to do cricket, which all of us are so passionate about. That's so nice to know, sir. You have covered 100 test matches and done lots of tours, but you have picked the full tour of Pakistan as a memorable one. Could you highlight on this? Yeah, well, each time you go out uh, to a cricket ground, whether it is in India, whether it is in Bangalore, whether it is outside India, it's, it's a fantastic experience. So just to be in a position to watch the top guys in their respective spheres, pit their wares against each other. It's a, it's a fabulous experience. And uh, I've enjoyed it all my tours. I mean, every single tour has been eventful. It has been fulfilling. Obviously, when the Indian team does well, then you feel the time passes by a little more faster than if the team doesn't do well. The, the Pakistan tour obviously was uh, what I said because it was the 2004 tour I'm talking about was the was the first time in 15 years that we were India was going on a full tour of Pakistan. India had not played a Test match in Pakistan since 1989 when uh, Sachin Tendulkar made his uh, debut. So there was this whole uh, obviously the great India-Pakistan rivalry, uh, which is something uh, rivaling the Ashes, if not better than that. So uh, there was this whole sense of anticipation about how the neighbors were renewing test rivalry on Pakistani soil after such a long time. And the relationship between the two countries were uh, probably extremely cordial, extremely nice. So it was great to see the kind of reception that the Indian team got when they went to Pakistan. And it was great to uh, receive the warmth and love of the people of Pakistan when they came to know that we were from India. So there was this great sense of uh, kinship and brotherhood uh, between the peoples. There were lots of Indians who had traveled across the border to watch at least the one-day games. And there was a huge media contingent. So it, 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 while all those things were sideshows, they never detracted from the quality of the competitive nature of the cricket. And India won the first test series in Pakistan on the tour. India won the first one-day series in Pakistan uh, on the tour. Uh, they had the first triple century in, in Test cricket on the tour. So when you when you put the whole package together, the, the experiences of the field, the action on the field, uh, it was just it was unbelievable. Uh, there have been many other memorable tours, but this tour stands out like it happened yesterday. Is it unfortunate that uh, that Bonhomie is not there anymore, and there's so much of animosity, and the tours have been the cricket relationship has been cancelled. And it's really unfortunate uh, that the two neighbors are not playing each other. Uh, okay, sir. Uh, you have written in Wisdom India that cricket is still the same between the bat and the ball, but a lot has changed over the years. What are those changes that have taken place? And uh, has it been for the good? Well, change is always for the better, isn't it? Uh, if you don't change, then you are stagnant and you are remaining static. And I don't think that is a sign of progress. Uh, it is still a simple game of bat and ball, but obviously over the years, uh, the the, co the elements associated with the game have changed dramatically. It's still you still have to hit the ball over the boundary line for a rope for a six. You still have to hit it through the ground into the fence for four. You still have to run your singles. All that has not changed, but equipment has changed both in terms of protective gear and in terms of the bats that we use. The ball continues to remain. Uh, the same size and the same weight, even though its color has changed over the years. But gradually, over from from only red ball, we went to white ball, also, and then now we are even playing test cricket with a pink ball. 
which which is all fantastic uh, because you want always to invite new audiences to come and partake of of the great sport of cricket. The fact that you had one day cricket meant that it appealed to an entirely different kind of uh, uh, a fan who probably might not be able to afford five days in this hustle and bustle of modern life. And then you had T20 cricket, which allowed uh, you to get a result in three hours, three and a half hours, because uh, it's become a family sort of outing, it's become a picnic, probably more outside India than in India, because the restrictions on entry and what you can bring in and where you can sit, and the costs are probably more prohibitive and probably a little more discouraging in India than in a place like England or Australia or New Zealand, for instance, or South Africa. But it's, it's, it's almost like an, a substitute for, for going out to the movies with the family, if you like. You know, it's just you go there for three hours, three and a half hours. And you just, it's, it's like cricket is there and it's, there's entertainment also. At the end of the day, you get to see uh, lots of uh, lots of fours and sixes. If you're lucky enough, you get to see yourself on the giant screen on the ground. So, which is all, which is which adds to the spectacle of the sport. Uh, because at the end of the day, by sport by itself is important, it's also entertainment. And uh, when you can combine those two and come up with products like T20 or the 100 in England, which could not happen this year due to obvious reasons, but which probably will kick uh, off next year, then these new formats add uh, add greater charm to the sport. Having said that, I think we have the authorities uh, and all of us who are stakeholders in, in, in the sport must ensure that the test cricket remains uh, as untouched and as as little tampered with as possible because it is. It is what uh, is a traditional form of cricket. It's not what just you and I who are fans sitting outside are saying, but the guys who are playing are saying that it is the ultimate test. Because it, it tests everything. It tests your skill, it tests your character, your stamina, your mental strength. So given all that, if the lesser we tamper with test cricket, the better. But it's great that other formats of the, of the game have come in so that we get more and more audiences and we can keep finding ways of staying ahead of the competition from other sports. Thank you, sir. I want to talk to you about two things. One is you were referring to the technology and the quality of bats and uh, what has changed. There is so much meat around in the bat nowadays. Uh, so the bats are so thick, so much meat around that sweet spot. And uh, the timing is enough. Uh, timing always mattered in batting. But still nowadays, uh, even the misfits are carrying over the fence. And it's really a tough time out there for the bowlers. Um, then my second question was, uh, they are tinkering around with the test match. Uh, now, already they are thinking about a four-day test match. The pink ball has arrived. Now, day and night has been introduced. They are also thinking of restricting the number of overs. Do you think all these will add to the spectatorship, uh, adding to uh, more people coming to the ground? Uh, well, let's talk about uh, test cricket first and then we'll go back to your first question about the bats. Uh, yeah, well, pink ball probably was required in some countries where uh, they felt that Audiences were diminishing because people had other things to do in the day and therefore they could not spend six hours on the ground. If you give them the game that starts in the second half of the day, then they can at least come in for three, four hours. All that is good, but it, it should continue, in my opinion, at least in my uh, opinion, it should just continue to be uh, a one-off, a novelty. It should be probably one test match in a series. We cannot, I don't think cricket uh, can afford to become a day-night game only because already the T20 games and the one-day games are played on the lights and if you take test cricket also entirely into the realm of floodlights then I'm not sure that is the best development. The occasional pink ball test is great because one of the disadvantages of playing with the pink ball is that uh, in so many ways you take the spinner out of the equation 
which is not great for the sport. Swim is, is a fascinating component of, of the game, and which is exactly also why, if you go back to a four, if you go to a four-day test, for instance, you take the spinner less and less uh, into consideration, which is a great shame because some of the great matches, especially in the subcontinent, they just unravel so dramatically on the final day. You come to the ground on the fifth morning. Uh, thinking, oh, this is just going to be a dull draw, and suddenly on day five, because of the wear and tear over the previous four days, the surfaces just act up crazy, and then you have like in three hours there is just this madness in the field, and you have a result. And if you have a four-day test match, it's unlikely that you will see any of those great Eden Gardens just for 2001 if you want. You may never have a repeat of that. So yes, it is important to to make innovations, but not at the at the cost of. Uh, tinkering with the basic core fabric of the sport. Now, going to your, uh, coming back to the first point of, no, uh, so going back to the bats, yes, I mean, the, the authorities have worked to uh, ensure that the that the meat is, is less, but unfortunately, because the, the, uh, the technology is so evolved, the, you, you are still able to get the lightest of bats with so much, uh, so much food packed in so tightly and so closely that you are able to generate the tremendous power uh, I think it's, it is. It has always been a, a basket sport, and now the challenges for the bowlers are becoming that much more uh, pronounced. So it, it, I think it's incumbent on the bowlers to come up with uh, with, with new tricks, with, with variations, with, with greater uh, intelligence to try and keep themselves on an equal footing with the batsman. I I don't think it is fair on the bowlers, but unfortunately, it has always been a batsman game and. That's something that bowlers over the years have come to learn. Saliva ban is adding to their O's. Yes, of course. I mean, the saliva ban in, in the collective wisdom, the medical team of the International Cricket Council has decided that uh, saliva should not be used for the foreseeable future, which... The reason, their excuse for introducing the day-night match is that people can come and come to the ground after they come back from work. So they want more, they are interested more in the gate money, they want more and more people to come to the ground because even though the viewership uh, on air viewership is so high uh, they still have want people to in the ground to get the real feel of uh, the spectatorship uh, maybe even the players would enjoy uh, lots of spectators in the ground well uh, i'm not sure if that the, the word excuse that you used is the right word that is the reasoning behind getting uh, uh, the games to a later time because you want because ultimately players are also entertainers and they are performers and you want an audience. You want an audience at the ground to play in front of... Uh, I, you know that millions of people are watching on television, but there's nothing like receiving instant support, instant applause, instant appreciation for what you're doing from the people at the ground. I understand that. But if you have seen, you know, since the since the introduction of day-night test matches, it is not as if uh, the gate numbers have gone up dramatically. They haven't. Maybe in the early stages when the novelty was there and then people were, were uh, thronging the grounds to watch. But then even most of the day night games end in three days, if not some of them spill over to the fourth day. So on the one hand, while you want the guys to come in and watch matches because cricket, like any sport, is a spectator sport. On the other hand, you have to balance the, 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 the need for getting people into the ground with increasing shortening of matches. At the end of the day, the... Maximum crowds will come if the quality of cricket is good, if two teams are reasonably evenly matched. And for that, you need good, proper playing conditions. So you can't have flat tracks where teams make 600. And if that is what we do, then 
as authorities as those involved in the, in the sport, they are shortchanging the sport themselves. So you can't expect the spectators to come and watch boring matches where 600 runs are scored and the other opposition replies with 550. At the same time, we have to be mindful of the fact that we don't have 160, 170 scores also, which is a genuine prospect if you play day-night test matches because conditions are far more loaded in favor of the faster bowlers than, than if you play a normal day test match. So there is a there is a, ba a tricky balance that has to be uh, that has to be met that has to be reached and uh, again this this whole concept of the night test is still an evolving process so I'm sure as we go forward and as we find more and more means of uh, making the system uh, viable and sustainable we will have better results. So cricket nowadays has become a, a bashing act of the bowlers you know they want more and more runs and you know, it should be the batsman will entertain the uh, the whole crowd and get more audience. Uh, but uh, how can they see that uh, both, uh, even the bowlers get an even, uh, be on an even keel and uh, uh, see that the contest is a very sportive one. Uh, and how can they make it more sportive for the bowlers to uh, add to that? Now, the more you they emphasize on uh, scores and entertaining the crowd, uh, the more the game is suffering uh, indirectly. Because uh, they are, uh, as you said, the bowlers are, even though the bowlers are dominating, but uh, especially the spinners are losing their uh, edge or uh, their, their... Yeah, well, uh, I am not sure if uh, cricket being a batsman's game is a recent phenomenon. It's been, from the time the sport started, it's always been a batsman's game and it will continue to be a batsman's game. There is no, there is no denying that. Because if, if the logic was that uh, the public doesn't enjoy watching big hits and the one-sided contest between bat and ball, then you will not have crowds for these T20 encounters across the world. The very fact that people keep coming even though you have 180, 190 years so sort of a reasonable pass score and reasonably good batting surfaces, it just shows that the, that's something that appeals to, to the people. But, I'm, but if you look at some of the most exciting games in the IPL, for instance, then they have come probably in Hyderabad or they have come in Chennai, which where the scores have been 125, 130, and the bowlers have been able to defend the scores. Now, that is something that I don't know if people will enjoy it day in and day out in a T20 format. In a T20 format, you probably want the bat to dominate the ball. It's it's about who is stronger and who is mightier from a batting perspective. Whereas when you go to the, slide, the longer versions, the one-day one format, for instance, and definitely for a test format, you need a greater balance between, between bat and ball, probably slightly more loaded in favor of the bowlers than the batsmen. And I say that because most of the rules are designed to to sort of favor batsmen because you only get one chance, you make one mistake, and technically that's how it's supposed to be because that's that's why it's more rules are loaded in favor of the batsman because a bowler can bowl five bad balls and still get a wicket to the sixth ball. A batsman plays one bad shot and he's gone, which is why a lot of the rules are skewed in favor of the batsman. But as you go towards test cricket, it is, it is essential. If you want to keep the interest going in in the longest and the most significant format of the game, then you have to offer that balance in terms of the pitches that you provide. It could be the pitches. There is a general uh, misconception, I don't know, it's convenient misconception around the world that pitches which help spinners are dangerous and diabolical, but nobody raises an eyebrow if 17 wickets fall to fast bowlers in the opening day of the test match. So, well, I think the balance must be in such a way that depending on where you're playing, depending on what conditions you get in those countries, and depending on what the traditional strength of the host countries, you can either have pitches slightly loaded in favor of 
the faster bowlers, if that is your strength, or you can have slightly drier tracks, which will bring spinners into play if that is the case, like it is in Sri Lanka or India or something like that. So we need to give the bowlers uh, something to work with. Mr. Kaushe, when you look at the history of cricket, you'll find great players have walked down the memory lane. That will be an exhausting list to draw. If you are to confine yourself to this new millennium, who would, would you rate as the best among uh, the great batsmen, Brian Lara, Ricky Ponting and Sachin Tendulkar? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think it's easy to uh, to say with any certainty that X is the best batsman or Y is the best batsman. The three names that you spoke of, Tendulkar, Lara, and Ponting, each one was uh, is a legend in his own right. You have to look at which team they played for, what was the uh, quality of the of the personnel around them. Uh, I mean, Ponting made lots of runs. He made runs in Australia, but he he struggled to score runs in India. Uh, uh, Brian Lara was often carrying the West Indies batting uh, on his own uh, shoulders, whereas uh, as uh, as we went into 2000 and beyond, then Tendulkar had this had this great support uh, cast of Sehwag, of Dravid, Ganguly, Lakshman. So I, I think it's uh, it's a futile exercise in many ways to to say that X was the best of the three. Uh, I think we must all as cricket lovers consider ourselves extremely fortunate that we, we were all part of an era, we have followed the sport in an era where some of the great champions of uh, all time have, have uh, played their ways and uh, I think it's it's a, it's great for cricket that you have these characters and these uh, legends that uh, people uh, follow so passionately and who sort of also bring people coming to the ground, it's not just on television, you, the aura of uh, a Tendulkar or an aura of a Ponting or a Lara actually draws people to come to the ground. I think that is a great advertisement for, uh, for the sport itself. Thank you. Uh, this debate goes on. Some people vote for Tendulkar, some say Lara is their favourite, some say it's Ponting, but uh, they are all league greats uh, as far as batting is concerned. So talking about fast bowlers, uh, amongst McGrath, uh, James Anderson and Dale Stain, um, what would you say about them? They, all, they have performed admirably well. Again, I mean, it's a very similar line of thought to what you have in terms of with the batsman. Uh, again, it's what attack were you a part of, what was your batting lineup like. And obviously, uh, Magra was part of one of the greatest Australian teams of all time. Anderson has been uh, a pillar of, uh, one of the pillars of England's success over many years, as was Stain uh, with South Africa. Now, each one was a different kind of bowler. Magra was metronomically accurate, so... He used to move the ball around a little bit, but he was he was your quintessential uh, accurate placement who made you who made you commit mistakes because he just he was there and thereabouts all the time. Anderson is an out and out uh, swing exponent. is brilliant to watch him bowl, especially in England and especially with the Duke's ball. He's, he's a fantastic exponent of, of uh, swing bowling. He's not probably as effective outside of England as uh, he has been in England, which. Uh, I think sometimes we tend to gloss over the fact that uh, somebody like an Anderson, for instance, is record at England, uh, in England, sorry, as opposed to in some other parts of the world are not uh, as impressive. In, in England, it's very impressive, not so impressive in some other parts of the world. We try to sometimes use our uh, great spinners to point that they're only uh, effective at home. And I think a lot of the, because you're familiar with your conditions and because you have assistance for your craft and your conditions, you will have a better record at home compared to 
overseas and there's no shame in that. But I just find this skew when we talk about the Indian spinners especially, uh, that we tend to label them as tigers at home and not so effective overseas. I think uh, I'm not exactly in agreement with that line of thought. But coming back to uh, Anderson, yes, phenomenal spring bowler. Dale Stain, a complete package, great exponent of reverse swing, which explains the successes that he's had in India. He's, he got a seven-wicket haul in a test match in Nagpur in 2010, seven for 51, if I'm not mistaken. Outstanding spell of reverse swing bowling. Um, I, I remember one battle between Stain and uh, Tendulkar in, in Cape Town in 2010-11 in that series. Uh, it was just, uh, it was fascinating to watch. It was the best uh, it showcased the best of test cricket, a master bowler at the top of his powers against the master batsman, admittedly towards the end of his career, but still his his command over his batting and the way he negotiated that outstanding spell from Stain was, was just an exhibition. Now, who do you think uh, uh, was the best in the, in the Indian subcontinent uh, pitches? I vote will maybe go to Magrath, Glenn Magrath. Because of his uh, discipline, line and length, uh, he always... So I was asking you, uh, amongst these three great fast bowlers, who would you say would uh, uh, was more effective in the Indian subcontinent? I think they all had their uh, moments. But if I had to pick one of these three, and which is, again, very subjective and people will have their opinions, but in my opinion, I think Dale Stain was probably the most uh, dangerous of, the, of, this, of this trio in, in Indian conditions. Okay. Now, coming to spinners, once again, it's a subjective and uh, very argumentative uh, between the three greats, Shainwan, Mutai Murlidhar and Anil Kumble, uh, who share the, the highest top three wicket takers in test cricket. Yes, I, I personally feel it's great for spin bowling that uh, the high, highest wicket taker is a spinner, the second highest wicket taker is a spinner, the third highest wicket taker is a spinner, which is uh, fantastic for, for cricket because uh, spin, I know it's it's great fun to watch a uh, fast bowler work batsman over, uh, but but uh, the real uh, to me the real joy lies in watching a very good spinner uh, go battle against a very good batsman, and uh, the magic of spin is uh, it's just completely uh, it's something else. Maybe we are all skewed because we come from India and we've had uh, we've grown up listening to tales of our great spin bowlers of the past. Therefore, it's probably and we didn't have too many fast bowlers in that era. Whereas that has changed now. Now we've got some some of the best fast bowlers in the world going at the moment. But but to me the the contest between the turning ball and batsman with soft hands and able to negotiate uh, the dangers, especially on wearing subcontinental traps, I think it, it's a it's a it's an exhilarating experience. Uh, you spoke about uh, Murali Vaughan and uh, Kumble. Each one uh, different kind of bowler. Obviously, uh, Murali Murali had to. Endure uh, barbs and scrutiny and criticism of his action, which was a direct result of uh, deformity at birth, uh, the hyperextension and, and stuff. But uh, he was a master craftsman. There was a time when, when Murli just arrived in the, on the international scene when he was a one-dimensional bowler in the sense that he had a huge off-break which would turn miles uh, and uh, not, not too much beyond that. Uh, but as he uh, grew in stature, as he grew in experience, uh, he added uh, the huge low uh, bat full of tricks, which uh, allowed him to take wickets in all parts of the world. I mean, he got 16 wickets in a test match in Oval that uh, Sri Lanka won. So he was not just a, a, an expert or a Indian wicket taker at, at home. He was also extremely effective overseas. Much of Sri Lanka's victories in 
that period was entirely due to due to Murli with the ball. Shane Warne obviously I mean, he he arrived probably at the most opportune time for Test cricket uh, for for international cricket if you like because spin was a little bit on the wane, leg spin especially, and then uh, for for Warne to come up uh, at that time and to come up trumps at that time. I mean he didn't have a great debut against India in, in Sydney. Uh, but when, when he went to England uh, for the Ashes and he produced that ball that Gatting, uh, and Gatting is a fabulous player of, of spin bowling, to get Gatting out in the manner in which he did with his first ball in a test match in England, that sort of, uh, and given the, the uh, hype that, that uh, surrounds an Ashes series for Shane Warne to make that kind of an impact in the first test of an Ashes series with his first ball in England, it sort of lent a whole, whole different uh, charm to Lexington bowling over the years. He would come up with fancy names saying that he had this variation, he had that variation. He was a master at playing the mind game. But but eventually, he was also an excellent uh, bowler. Again, in all conditions, he probably, like Ponting, did not have the greatest, does not have the greatest record in India. But uh, that is also as much to the, to the brilliance of the Indian batsman uh, as to the fact that probably he was not at his fittest sometimes when he came to India. He had a shoulder injury when he came in 98. Those may sound like excuses, but obviously, like Indians, and, and that Indian side, when you had the Tendulkar at his peak, when you had Azharuddin, who was just one of the greatest players of the turning ball. So, uh, while he didn't do so well in India, that should not in any way detract from, from what a genius he was. Uh, as for our own uh, Kumle, people kept. Uh, People kept trying to pick holes in, in his bowling, but uh, he kept picking up wickets. I remember one of his famous lines where he said that both on him and on Tendulkar, there was always pressure uh, throughout their careers. The pressure on Tendulkar was to prove people right because they expected so much of him. And the pressure on Kumble himself was to prove people wrong because they all thought it was only a matter of time before he fades away. And for somebody like that to persist, to come through that uh, career-threatening shoulder injury, and then to reinvent his bowling, to, to make up for the uh, loss of fist by getting more and more variations into his craft, and to actually have a, a as good a second half of his career as uh, the first half is, is a tribute not just to his determination, but also his willingness to work hard and to keep getting better and better every day. That the series in Australia in 2003-04, where he got 24 wickets in three test matches, that has to be one of the highlights of, of this uh, storied and celebrated career. We're not even talking 10 wickets. I mean, that's, that's a phenomenal, unbelievable achievement. But I, I think I think each one of them was is a legend in his own right. Uh, and again, like we spoke about Clara, Tendulkar, Ponting. Likewise, I think cricket, was, cricket is and cricket followers are very fortunate uh, that these three gentlemen all performed at their peak at the same time. And, and sort of elevated the profile of of spin bowling. Uh, that that magical ball of uh, Shane Warren that dismissed uh, bowled uh, Mike Gatting around the legs was described as the ball of the millennium. Yeah, well, I mean these these labels are all uh, all uh, well and good. I mean we need these are they, these are the uh, uh, products of hype and, uh, and and modern day the need to brand and label things, but. If there was one event that uh, did justice to all the hype, then it definitely was that one. Yes, yes, but it, it came back a long way. 
uh, from right around the legs, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he went right, right. He pitched well outside the leg stump, spun right across Gatting and hit the off stump. And again, as we sort of tried to establish previously, Gatting was no mean player of fast bowling. He's, he's one of the finest players of fast bowling from outside of the subcontinent. So for him to be to be bemused and befuddled like that, you know, it, it did take some doing. There's so much magic in his bowling. Then coming to Murli, he invited a lot of controversy with his odd bowling action. Um, he was uh, called for checking, then he was cleared. Um, well, was there a reality in about his checking or uh, people read it out of jealousy that they, uh, because he, they were, he was unplayable? Uh, what was the, what was around the surrounding that uh, controversy about checking? Like I was saying, Murli uh, was never the most conventional kind of action. So the fact that he had an unconventional action, which seemed to give the impression that he was he was throwing the ball rather than bowling the ball. Uh, there was an issue with that, there's no doubt about it. It was it was a very freakish kind of action. And uh, he was called on the field. And there, was a, uh, there was a provision at that time in the mid-90s mid and a little beyond for people to be called on the field of play. So he was called in Australia in 95 uh, and Arjuna was almost starting to walk out of the, of the ground in protest because he felt that he was being unfairly targeted and discriminated against. And uh, as if to lend meat to that theory, a uh, little while later, again in Australia, when Murli started, when he was called for checking the off break, he started bowling leg spin. And uh, I don't know what, I can never uh, explain what was going through the umpire's mind, but even when he was bowling leg spin, he was being called for checking. And as anybody who's made even a little bit of cricket, Will, uh, will know if you go, if you chuck while going the leg spin, you'll end up practically breaking your arm. So there was a, a little bit of anti-Murli bias uh, uh, in certain quarters at that time. Well, uh, then the rules were uh, sort of reworked. Maybe Murli was a catalyst. Maybe people understood that because of Murli's problem, that if you have a congenital problem, if you have a birth defect, and so if, because of this, that you need to relook at the uh, probably the rigidity of the rules as they existed then. Uh, so it was, it was, the rules were reshaped and then when he was tested after the reshaping of the rules, he was never found to be uh, contravening them. So, yeah, and you can debate depending on which side of the fence you're sitting on, you can debate uh, whether it was, his action was legal or not. But most of the time he passed muster with all the uh, tests that were done in different parts of the, of the world. And uh, all said and done, he was clear to play by the authorities, by the officials who make decisions on these things. And he ended up with with a phenomenal 800 wickets, so I mean, you can argue what you want, but you can never take any of those things. So, not can you take away the joy that he gave, not just with his bowling, but just with his presence on the field. Uh, who would be your uh, favorite all-rounder in this new millennium? Oh, I think that, that's I think that's pretty straightforward. It has to be uh, Jatkalis. Just just the numbers. If, it, if nothing else, you just take the numbers and then 10,000 runs and test cricket, 10,000 runs and one day cricket, 300 wickets and test cricket, 300 wickets and one day cricket. Not to mention the 100 plus catches in, in the formats. He is just captain's dream. I mean, he was, he was two and a half almost rated as rolled in one. He could uh, take the new ball, he could come and bowl as a support bowler. He could, uh, if he wanted somebody to come and hit the deck and keep hustling batsman with, with pace, he would do that. Uh, if he wanted him to just hold one end up, he would do that. And uh, as a batsman, as a batsman, I think he was, he was probably not as celebrated as I think he should have been. Uh, Solid batsman, fantastic presence, great, great uh, stroke maker. 
there was one criticism of which office, and uh, there has been uh, a lot of criticism of uh, Paulus about his strike rate, if you like, in, in limited areas, we didn't wonder with it, and then later on in T20 cricket. Maybe that is justified to an extent, but, but as, a, as a package, very good catches that you should take in the slips. And, and the South African pace attack is to create so many chances. And because they were quick, those balls really used to fly off the edges of their back. And, and Callis, just to know that there's somebody like Jack Callis standing in the slip with those big buckets for hands, and that he will take 98 or 100 catches that come this way. And just the confidence that it generates in the bowling group is, is, is just not quantified. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Kaushik, uh, what changes will the game of cricket see once it returns uh, post uh, this uh, COVID uh, lo lockdown? Yeah, I suppose we'll just have to wait and uh, watch how, how things unfold because this is a situation that none of us has been exposed to in the, in the past or, or till now. So it would be uh, slightly uh, presumptuous to say that uh, we could see this and we could see that. We just have to have to wait and uh, see how things pan out. We'll get a chance to see how things are uh, in about uh, 20 days from now when, when England and West Indies meet in the first of three test matches in Southampton. Already, the fact that West Indies are in England uh, is, is probably is, is, is great for, for world cricket because we haven't had any action for more than three months now. Uh, so it's credit to West Indies that they were, they were willing to uh, take the chance, if you like, to, to travel so far to England and to, to stay, to follow the quarantine rules and to partake of the entertainment, to provide entertainment to people who goes into five of live international action, live action of any kind in cricket for a long time now. Of course, we know that the saliva plan is now uh, already in place, so players will no longer be uh, permitted to use saliva to sign the ball, to use sweat, as the authorities have, uh, have clear, uh, clarified. But for the time being, it's only sweat. No external object. There's been talk of talk of uh, maybe allowing them to use a certain amount of wax for innings, but all that has been shut down. All that is not in the ambit at the moment. So straight away, you know that uh, you know that saliva, and therefore the result and impact that it will have on keeping the ball uh, shiny on one side, therefore to facilitate swing, to facilitate fuller swing. We will have to make do without that for a while. In England, for instance, the West Indies series has taken place in two grounds of previous matches, one in Southampton, two in Manchester, where there are there is a hotel inside the ground. You know, the, the, from the hotel rooms, you can actually see the action. So, therefore, you are avoiding the risk of travel. We are trying to provide as secure uh, an environment as possible to prevent uh, people from uh, contacting viruses through to contact with other people. There are going to be tests for the for the coronavirus before the start of matches. So the way the celebrations will no longer be as exuberant or they will not involve hugging, maybe a high five or an elbow, elbow touch if you like. So already we know that these are things that will definitely change in the way that cricket is going to be played once we return from from uh, from this hiatus. But Exactly how that uh, how action on the field turns out in light of the change, uh, especially the change approach to ball with the ban on saliva. That's that's often uh, there. We'll, as we play a few games, we'll probably get a better understanding of, of how the dynamics of that particular aspect play. Okay, but can you imagine an IPL being played in front of an empty stadium without uh, spectators? What is an IPL without uh, spectators? 
but that's going to be the reality in your future. It's already, if you see the, some of the leagues that have started in Europe, some of the football leagues, the German league has started, the Spanish league has started, and the English Premier League is supposed to start on Wednesday, that is today. So uh, those leagues are behind, played behind uh, closed doors, behind in front of empty stands. And while it is not ideal, because at the end of the day, the players are performers, they want instant appreciation. They know that millions of people are watching them on television, but the, the adrenaline rush and the thrill that you get from, from being appreciated instantly by people in the ground is something else. So yes, it is, it is definitely not ideal to play in front of empty uh, stands, but we are not in an ideal world currently. So you need to know, you need to understand, you need to realize that these are these are the uh, restrictions that we that are in place because of things beyond anyone's control. So would we rather play in front of uh, uh, no spectators uh, or would we rather not play at all? That's a, it's, a, uh, it's a question of life, the livelihood. And uh, so, yes, I mean, the atmosphere will be missing, with, with, obviously, when you're playing with more fans present. But uh, life has to go on. It's not uh, if you have to make adjustments because this is a new norm, normal, as they say. Then you have to make those adjustments. You can't, you can't keep complaining about what is not there. Probably look at what is there and try to make the best of what the situation is and what we are presenting. I'll say that this the whole phase is going to be temporary. It is not going to be forever. So cricket will return to its full glory once uh, the uh, corona has been seen through. Yeah, well, that's the that's the hope. It's not just about cricket. Cricket, yes, but also sport. Yeah, it's about the uh, life itself in general and the sports in particular. Yeah, you just heard the part one of the conversation with senior cricket journalist Mr. R. Kaushik. There's more to come in part two. Don't go away.